0: Welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm a clinical assistant professor and infectious diseases pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and UPMC Health System. I am joined today by three panelists to discuss a COVID-19 therapy that's received quite a bit of media attention, and that is monoclonal antibodies. And we're going to focus on how to rapidly establish outpatient infusion sites in the United States during a pandemic, because that's what all of us went through when we learned about the emergency use authorization of these therapies. This episode was sponsored by an unrestricted medical education grant from Regeneron, And so get ready for an hour full of practical suggestions and things that we've learned along our implementation journey. Our first panelist for this episode is Dr. Susan Davis, who is the president of the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists and also a member of the NIH COVID-19 Guidelines Panel. Susan, in her day job, serves as a professor at Wayne State and an infectious diseases pharmacist at Henry Ford Hospital. Susan, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks, Aaron. I'm looking forward to it. And my practice is in Detroit, serving Southeast Michigan. I'm very proud to represent SIDP on the NIH panel, but I, I do have to remind people that today I'm sharing my personal insights and not representing the discussions of
0: the panel. Thanks, Susan. We're really glad to have you here. We're also joined today by Dr. Emily Spivak, an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Utah. Emily is also the co-director of the Antimicrobial Stewardship Program at University of Utah Health and the Salt Lake City Veterans Affairs Healthcare System. She's a member of the Utah Crisis Standards of Care Monoclonal Antibody Allocation Guideline Committee, which is a very cool system that I can't
2: wait for her to talk more about. Thank you, Erin. I've been looking forward to this and excited to be here.
0: Our third panelist is Dr. Minky Wong-Watana, an infectious diseases specialist who also directs the antimicrobial stewardship program and the PGY2 infectious diseases pharmacy residency program at Maine Medical Center. Minky, hello.
3: Hi, Erin. Thanks for the invitation to be part of this podcast. When I got the invite, I was excited to share some of my experiences at Maine Medical Center, but also at Maine Health, which is the health system I'm part of. So thanks for the invite.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much. I'm really thrilled to have all three of you here to talk about your expertise. Before we dive into your implementation strategies, I do want to briefly review for our listeners what these antibodies are, the data behind them, and why they received an emergency use authorization for patients infected with COVID-19. I'm also very interested to review where they're currently positioned in the NIH guidelines. So Susan, do you mind summarizing this for us? I know it's like no small task to go through all the data, but I'm confident you're up to it.
1: I can try. My notes to myself say don't get too wonky, but for listeners wanting more detail, I would point you to SADP's COVID-19 resources on YouTube for the full critique. So the basic concept behind antibody therapy for viral infection is to provide passive immunity by delivering antibodies that target specific viral domains. These then help to clear the virus for either treatment or prevention. We have several available monoclonal antibodies, and I'm probably going to call those MABs because it's easier, that have emergency use authorization for COVID-19 in the U.S. with others at various stages of development or trials. So right now we have bamlanivimab monotherapy, or in combination with edesavimab, and another combination product, casarivimab and endevimab. For the sake of time, I'm only going to focus on the ambulatory data. In general, these ambulatory studies enroll patients in outpatient settings with at least one symptom, and they're enrolled early, within three days after a positive test. These studies randomize patients at various doses or combinations of the mAbs versus placebo. Endpoints of interest tend to be reduction in viral load from baseline and COVID-related medical visits or death. We start with the BLAZE-1 Part A trial, and that compared bamlanivimab monotherapy at three doses versus placebo, around 100 patients per arm. In the pooled bamlanivlimab arms, 1.6% of patients were hospitalized or had emergency department visits, compared to 6.3% in the placebo arm. In the Regeneron 2067 study, that compared the combination of casirivimab and imdevimab to placebo. Again, in the pooled antibody arms, 2% of patients had medical visits compared with 4% in the placebo group. Interestingly, though, there was a subset where the treatment effect was more pronounced in those patients who had an initial serum antibody negative or non-reactive. More recently, we have the continued results of the Blaze one Phase three study. That was shared publicly, including as part of the EUA, but has not been published in a peer-reviewed study yet, at least not as of this recording. So that preliminary analysis includes over 1,000 patients randomized to the combination of bamlanivimab plus etesevimab or the placebo patients. The population was about one-third 65 or older, mean BMI around 33, and the duration of symptoms at enrollment around four days. Primary endpoint of that was, again, COVID-related hospitalization or death. That occurred in 2% of patients receiving the combination versus 7% receiving placebo that is a 70% relative reduction in that endpoint. There were no deaths in the arm receiving the combination, and 10 deaths, or 2%, in those in the placebo group. So we've got some modest and some more meaningful endpoints here that have gathered our evidence. One of the most important subsets I would point you to as you read these studies is the high-risk population, which varies in representation against each of these populations. But in each of the studies mentioned, the treatment effect was more pronounced in patients at high risk of progression. And across all studies, the adverse events we're most worried about, like anaphylaxis or infusion-related reactions, have been rare, but safety day is not completely reported for all of these. As of their last update on this topic, IDSA's guidelines recommend against routine use of the bamlanivimab or the Regeneron combination product, with remarks then regarding the potential benefit in high-risk patients. But again, as of this recording, they have not yet released a statement on the bamlanivlimab edicevimab combination. NIH guidelines, as of February 11th, state insufficient data against those two products. However, the March 2nd update addresses the data specifically on bamlanivlimab plus edicevimab. That recommendation is for use in outpatients with a high risk of progressing to hospitalization. Caveats exist around the emerging variants. None of these products are currently recommended in hospitalized patients and studies for prevention are ongoing. So that's my monoclonals 101. And I've been talking long enough. Minky or Emily, do either of you have major data highlights that stand out to you as you think about the place in therapy?
2: No, I mean, you know, I think the question is like, you've already sort of highlighted this. Do these, is it a clinically meaningful? Well, up until the last study you quoted, The primary outcomes, in my opinion, were not clinically meaningful. Those the prior RCTs were not. The primary outcome was viral shedding, if I'm not mistaken. And so, you know, it was unsort of clear the secondary outcomes. It was hypothesis generating and suggestive. I think the take home, as you already mentioned, is that you know the the bang for the buck is going to be in high risk patients. I think it's all a matter of like thinking about that. You're we're clearly going to need to overtreat or that it, depending on the population you treat, a higher number needed to treat to see a clinical impact. Yeah, no, there's nothing to add to that. I don't think, but. I liked the last data you mentioned. I hadn't heard that yet.
3: Yeah, I agree. I think where the rubber meets the road is, you know, as clinicians, you want to know if clinical outcomes matter. And these are phase two studies. You know, just to be frank, these are phase two studies that looked at titers, antibody titers, and if it was neutralized or not. And that's great as a starting point, but we want, very heavy phase three. Um, lots of patients. We want to see if uh, in a large population it affects uh, outcomes like hospitalization, hospitalization and deaths. And the one thing that I want to touch upon is some of these studies go into caveats. So the Bamlanivimab study went into high risk. So, you, Susan, you said the word high risk a lot. And high risk in that study looked at elderly patients defined as greater than 65 years of age or BMI greater than 35. In the Regeneron study, they looked at patients who antibody-tested negative showed that they had a benefit more so than antibody-tested positive. So there's a lot of caveats, and we don't really know what that means. They are, like Emily said, hypothesis-generating.
0: Yeah, I agree with all of you, and I think that's, I liked Emily, you're, you know, we don't want to overtreat, we don't want to under-treat. If these really keep pay, pay high-risk patients out of the hospital and prevent death, sign me up. We need to be figuring out ways to give them to patients, which is what we're going to transition to. Assuming that we think that is the benefit, how do we give these to patients and how do you actually operationalize this? But so many caveats that we'll discuss and Minky, your point is excellent. If these have the most benefit, Susan, you mentioned in patients that are antibody negative at baseline, I'm not being able to do rapid antibody testing and then decide if I'm scheduling them for an infusion and all of these things. So how do you take the optimal trial world data and translate that into infusing things across your health systems, across one hospital, even, and across states, which I think Emily is going to talk to you a lot. Susan and everyone, I'm uber impressed with your pronunciation. I'm terrified about all the times I'm going to have to say these antibody names throughout this podcast. So we should have put a disclaimer at the beginning that we are all going to forgive ourselves on pronunciation here. And then for an anchor, thanks for pointing out we are recording this podcast on March third, twenty twenty one. Just to frame our audience when we listen, when we talk about data, since we know things evolve so rapidly in the combination in the in the combination space in the COVID nineteen. Space, but speaking of combination products, and that that last data Susan mentioned is intriguing, but that is the the Eli Lilly combination product of Bamlanivimab plus estevimab, which we, as of this recording, have not received yet in my health system. So there's some manufacturing concerns, I believe, as well as some um, concerns due to the, the terrible tragedies that occurred in Texas due to weather-related things with shipping. And so, to my knowledge, not. I don't know if any health system in the country has received this combination product yet. And Susan is shaking her head on our, on our Zoom pod recording here. So we don't have it yet, but it's coming. And so we'll have to build that in. But we do have the Regeneron combination product of Casirimab and Endevumab. And we do have the Lilly Monotherapy Project of Bamlu product of bamlanivimab. And then also do want to briefly give a shout out to Dr. Jesse Ortwine, who did the SIDP educational video that Susan mentioned. She pronounces these names just absolutely phenomenally for the entire video. So you should watch it honestly solely just for that, just to learn how to pronounce the the antibody names. But she goes through all of the data in great detail if you want more background. All right, let's dig in. Minky, I'm going to start with you. So... Monoclonal antibodies, we see that phase two data come out, they get an emergency use authorization about mid-November, and your team, your stewardship team in Maine is like, all right, how do we give these to our patients? Where did you even start in terms of assembling a team and beginning to think about operationalizing these therapies?
3: Yeah, I'm fortunate enough to have multiple ID pharmacists with me. Shout out to my partner, adult ID pharmacist, Christina, and then my pediatric and health system pharmacist, Eliza. And that's three of us, but then we also have a fourth individual. So my PGY two, I think of them as part of our team too. So the four of us rolled our sleeves up. And what we did was we, we looked at the blaze one manuscript when it came out. The toughest part around that time of year was the Pfizer vaccine was making headlines remdesivir was FDA approved. And now this monoclonal antibody was getting EUA authorization. So there were a lot of balls to juggle with COVID-19 and, you know, luckily we were able to diversify, divvy out some of the, the, the labor. So for my, my role in the monoclonal antibody, number one question was, so these patients are COVID positive and they're getting it in an outpatient infusion center, the first red light went off is, do we really want these patients entering an infusion center with, you know, other immunosuppressed patients. You know, we have our infusion center people getting immunosuppressants, MAB therapy or IV oncology medications. And so that was a red flag where we couldn't use our normal infusion centers. And so what we did was my chief pharmacy officer for the health system, Brian Martin, we were able to find a, another location that we weren't really using at the time, but the challenge was staffing that. And I think that's maybe something that both Emily and Susan are going to talk about too, is the challenges of staffing this without you know, state or even federal support financially, personnel. And so we actually took away people from our normal infusion centers that were providing normal, you know, care and then staffing these up to as best as we could. And so a long story short, we're able to we were able to support four appointments a day, five days a week, not Saturdays and Sundays, so Monday through Friday. And so what we did was we did two in the morning, two at night, sort of PM, I guess. And the challenges were also in the stability. If you guys look at the package insert, Bamlinivimap has seven hours of stability at room temperature once compounded, but Regenerons was only four. And so, with those caveats, we actually compound our Bamlinivimap at another site, a third site, and then a courier comes to pick it up, drives it up to our infusion center, and then that's where it's infused. And so, right off the bat, we had to delineate Regeneron was meant for in patients like ed locations where we can just make it on site and give it within the four hours. And then bam, the was then allocated to these outpatient locations. And so right off the bat, you look at the package insert, you have to have pharmacy operations hat on. Um, and that was kind of what drove um, us to decide where to give it. In terms of criteria, I think um, I'll put up, you know, put a shout out to my other colleagues up north in, in Bangor, two hours north of us, Kyle and Kelly, we got together. And as a state, the CMOs of our state of Maine got together and we decided very early on that the high risk patients that Susan mentioned would be the ones we wanted to allocate to first. And that was because that's what the data showed. We didn't know much about the younger patients and we didn't know much about the not so obese patients. So based on that, the CMOs of Maine, not just Maine Health, but every other CMO in the state of Maine decided, we don't know how much drug we're getting Maine was, you know, allocated a, a small amount. So we decided those would be the patients we'd prioritize first. And if supply was plenty, we would then think about other patients as well. So I'm I'm curious to see how Emily and, and Susan were able to, you know, operationalize this as well.
1: I think our process at My Health System has been perhaps a little less involved. There's been somewhat low demand, but I, I would start by saying that throughout the pandemic, We have relied very heavily on our existing antimicrobial stewardship infrastructure for all of our therapeutic implementation. But our stewardship resources are very heavily inpatient. And this is a totally different skill set, a totally different group of physicians and other providers. So we had to really broaden our network of collaborators we've been thankful to be able to rely heavily again on an existing infusion center support and then carving out those appropriate protected spaces. We had some initial hiccups with groups who are less familiar with infectious diseases or with EUAs trying to suggest criteria that didn't necessarily match the EUA and had to redirect on that a little. It really required a lot of, I think, leadership focus to keep everyone on the same page. But uptake has been slow compared to even elsewhere in our state. The Upper Peninsula for one has been touted as a champion. If you know anything about Michigan geography, that seems counterintuitive. The UP is quite rural. So I asked a colleague from up north, her name's Jacqueline. She's an SIDP member. And she chalked that up to great communication network and buy-in from prescribers who were highly motivated to keep people out of the hospital. So in general across the state supply still exceeds demand and and we haven't been using all of the available appointments.
2: In the state of Utah we approach this a little bit differently I think and uniquely compared to some other places. So we have as many states do a state crisis standards of care committee and earlier in the pandemic specifically when we heard Remdesivir was going to get EUA authorization there was a subcommittee of this crisis standards of care that was formed that included infectious diseases experts and pharmacists from all of the major health systems in the state of Utah, also an ethicist, state representatives, and I'm probably missing some other people, pediatrics, even representation. And this group got together, uh, and I won't go into remdesivir, but before there was full FDA approval, really decided as a state one how we were going to allocate it and how we were going to then the criteria for use so that we had um, so we had similar use across the state and weren't having confusing messages for patients and sort of competition in that way so then we retired that committee but of course when we heard that the monoclonal antibodies were going to get EUA approval we reconvened and this group has actually been really really amazing so this group formed and we or we came back together before the EUA even came out and started having discussions about one, how to allocate the drug, which clearly is very different than thinking about an an inpatient allocation for COVID therapy to everyone's points before. And that was driven by everyone figuring out these things we're talking about, like infusion capacity. Do they wanna do it? And I won't name some places that didn't even wanna do it. If they were gonna do it, where? And we each had to determine our infusion capacity. And then that informed the state allocation how much drug we each got. So that was like one piece. And then the next piece was deciding clinically how we were going to prescribe it. And I'm like amazed when that like we've, it's kind of like stewardship at a state level. We've all agreed on all these things. I mean, it's been a lot of discussion, but we decided that we wanted to have similar criteria for use across the state because we were very concerned about health equity and access for this drug. So this group, you know, thinking limited capacity, we didn't know how much drug we were going to get and health equity. We looked at the EUA, and one thing that we noticed was not in there at all is race, ethnicity, or any kind of hard-hit communities. You know, targeting them and trying to make sure access, health, there's health equity and access to this. So I have to give a shout out to my my colleague Brandon Webb. He's a ID physician at Intermountain Healthcare. So he and his group there, this was probably from the beginning of the pandemic through October, had a cohort of 22,000 COVID positive patients in their system, and essentially went back and did some regression modeling, looking at what are predictors for 14 day hospitalization and 28 day mortality. And essentially we're able to come up with a weighted risk prediction score that, you know, obviously as you move the score cutoff, it, it changes your probability, refines it of, of death and hospitalization. And we have used that risk score at a state level. You can go to coronavirus.utah.gov forward slash novel therapeutics. If anyone wants to look at our our entire documents on there, also the calculator is on there and we've changed the score as we had more access, we've dropped the score. But the thing I want to point out is I'm really glad that we did this. And I'm proud of this is that even at adjusting for comorbidities, race, non-white race ethnicity is one of the most significant predictors, even if you're obese, diabetic, blah, 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 which shouldn't surprise anyone. But that factored into our risk score and wasn't the end-all be-all, but was an approach to try and, to be frankly honest with you, not just have those who are, you know, have internet access and I don't want to say worried well, but those who have who can advocate for themselves and have physicians advocating for themselves so that this wasn't just there for them, that this was a therapy that was available for everybody. So that, that group decided essentially again allocation and then the clinical criteria for use, I will say we also dropped the symptom duration to seven days because it just made more sense to us clinically from the EUA so it was down to seven days and then we use this risk prediction score if you look at it I think our initial cutoff was greater than eight or 8.5 now it's down to greater than 5.5 on that risk score And so anyway and uh, yeah I'll stop there and I, I can tell you later about sort of how we operationalized it internally It was up to each system to operate operationalize internally essentially how we were going to implement that risk score and and stick to it and get providers to stick to it internally.
0: I would highly encourage all the listeners to check out the Utah Criteria, which are publicly available. It's pretty amazing, and that's exactly what you know we want to do is give this to the patients that benefit the most, and they had state-specific data to show these things and ensure they're treating those patients as priority, which was, it's really impressive, and it's a great resource for all of us to, to model. You guys have said a lot of very important things, and I want to unpack a few in a bit more detail. So the infection prevention considerations, which we'll come back to, and then you mentioned the considerations for infusion centers versus emergency departments. In my health system, the concept of infusing and in emergency departments came up early in November, and now we're re-exploring it. But. We went back and forth quite honestly because even though it's logistically easier and that's where patients may present, which is important to know, especially patients that don't have a PCP or may not access healthcare, they might go to the ED first. And we want to make sure we treat those patients. But also at, in the early phase two data that we had, ED visits were lumped into hospitalizations. And if that was the intriguing secondary endpoint that we really cared about, you know, is it? counterintuitive to infuse the therapy in the emergency department when they're supposed to be keeping people out of the emergency department or the hospital. So how, what discussions did your team have about that? Cause it sounds like you are using your. EDs.
3: Yeah, I, I think there's two sides of the coin with the ED. I think the first knee jerk reaction when you hear ED is do patients just show up or do PCPs just refer patients to the ED. And that was a absolute no, we didn't want our EDs flooded with PCP referrals. We we warned our PCPs, please don't refer your patients to the ED. This is not where this is not an infusion center, but let's flip the coin a little bit and think about patients who do show up, not knowing they have COVID and then They feel ill, they show up, they get tested and they're positive, but we were warning our PCPs not to refer patients to the EDs and refer them to the infusion centers. For the inpatient side, I think we, you know, when we looked at the FAQs of Bamlanivimab and the Regeneron product, they did allow health systems and hospitals to give it to patients who were admitted for non-COVID reasons. Greatest example I give, it's the easiest way I do it is say someone fell, broke a leg, shows up to your hospital, needs an orthopedic surgery, Right. And then they're, you know, during their stay, they may test positive. Maybe they weren't positive when they showed up, but now they they're positive. And so you, you have a patient who's showing mild symptoms, cough and fever, same thing, you know, while the data did show it's supposed to prevent hospitalization, you know, clearly this patient wasn't there for COVID. They broke a leg, they needed medical care. So while we try to delineate that primary, or actually it was a secondary outcome, not primary outcome. It's about what we can do to help these patients. And so I think that's where we took the FAQ and said for inpatients, if you're admitted for a non-COVID reason, we would consider if they were not progressing to those severe needing O2s or you know saturating oxygen less than 94%. So those are two caveats um, for inpatient use.
0: The other thing I want to dig into is infection prevention. And maybe Emily, you can speak to this a little bit about how the Utah sure. State handled this. What considerations needed to go into play for outpatient infusion centers?
2: Sure, I'm just gonna jump in on the 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 uh, inpatient thing and just say that we don't allow it inpatient. I can elaborate on why, but. We were worried about a lot of creep. I don't know. I've re- I my team has reviewed all COVID positive inpatients in our system or in our hospital for the entire year. It's part of our stewardship rounds every morning. And I'll tell you, you guys know it, it's hard sometimes to tell, and the teams don't know if the patient is truly symptomatic or not. And we have kept it strictly outpatient. Now at the state level, we had we have a lot of rural critical access hospitals here with some different concerns and concerns about getting paid. They don't have tertiary level care. They'd have to fly up here. But we have allowed some of the rural hospitals to do it. Okay, so it, sorry, infection control. So infection control consideration. So at a state level, we didn't tackle any of that. It was up to each system and infusion, you know, whatever, to, to figure that out on their own. Clearly, that's a concern. So, for the University of Utah, we've had our infection prevention and control colleagues on the hook for this <laughs> the whole time. So, when the state group got together and started talking about this, we immediately got together, University of Utah group, and we actually have a monoclonal antibody huddle once a week. It was more—it was twice a week when this first started—and it includes me. It can includes Aaron Fox, who's head of drug information. It includes our head pharmacy manager over all the infusion centers. It includes urgent care, and I'll explain why in a minute. It includes our IT T group, what's called care navigation or patient navigation, because they do a lot of outreach for us to reach out and grab patients and pull them in who qualify and infection prevention has been part of that group. We have a lot of outlying clinics. Some that have urgent cares attached, there's the buildings with like, you know, there's multiple clinics in a building and some will have urgent cares attached to them and some will even have EDs. So we don't do it in the EDs at all so that we don't clog up the EDs. But we decided we wanted to do it in infusion centers and infection control essentially went out to our infusion centers and figured out essentially logistically like which ones it would best fit in, which one had individual rooms where they could shut the doors and that kind of thing. We did actually convert an entire, one of our entire infusion centers. Our administration just figured out how to reschedule everybody and move everybody out of this infusion center to our other infusion centers. Now, I didn't hear the blowback of their patient complaints about that. But essentially, that solved a staffing issue because they're already, you know, nurses staffed at this infusion center. It's just now that they're dealing with COVID positive patients. We did an infusion center next to an urgent care, too, so that the urgent care providers are there on call, essentially, if there's an infusion reaction and something and, and somebody needs to needs to respond, but that's how we addressed, you know, infection control went vetted and and sort of set up the the space. And then staffing was figured out by just moving essentially all the patients out to and dedicating one infusion center.
0: And I think the staffing consideration is another key point before we move on to our next segment. So when you're starting in operational considerations, if you haven't started infusing antibodies yet, we actually across the UPMC health system, which is essentially the entire Western half of Pennsylvania. So we have a lot of rural sites, a lot of smaller, less than hundred bed hospitals all the way up to our academic. Center in the in the city of Pittsburgh and so we wanted to treat our patients and these critical access sites and all of these considerations so we actually put up 16 infusion centers across the state but largely lever, leveraged existing infrastructures. And our guidance was largely, you can bring COVID patients in, but they need to be geographically separated in the center. So different wings if possible. But what we actually really did was the timing, which I know both of you have mentioned. So, you know, standard infusions were done between eight and four or whatnot. And then the infusion center stayed open from six to nine or something like that to do the COVID infusions. And that's how we managed that. But then, so actually at the beginning, our scarce resource was nurses. And chairs, not necessarily drug supply, because that was what we needed the most of. And so that's just something to keep in mind with staffing. Other things we made the call on is that patients did not have to be in negative pressure rooms in outpatient infusion centers. So that was something that we put out guidance on and said, no, they don't have to be in negative pressure. And then, of course, everyone needs an N95. So you need to, if you're building pop up sites or whatnot, your staff have to have appropriate PPE
2: many people probably do this too, is that we have signage in the parking lot too. And they're given, they're like given messages ahead of time that they they don't just come in the building either. They get, they like text the infusion nurse and they essentially get escorted because again, we have other patients throughout that building that we don't want them roaming around. That did happen once, but like, so that's when we figured out this system, that kind of stuff is something to think about as well.
0: Yeah. That's a really good point. I love that. So let's Dig into then Now we've talked setup, IP concerns, staffing, all these things you need to think about. Locations, things you need to make decisions on. Now let's get patients there. So, Emily, you explain this a little bit in thinking about the the Utah system and the point system. But can you start us off with how your patients are actually referred and scheduled?
2: Yes. Yeah. And this has changed quite a bit. So on the state website, also is listed. All the providers in the state who provide who who can who have and can give monoclonal antibody, and essentially you can get into each system a different way. For our system, there's a phone number that you call, and we have a limited number of of essentially care navigator, or whatever they call themselves, people that answer the phone, and essentially we will do a the patient will make you know call and say I'm interested in monoclonal antibody therapy, and this is a patients can call right in. They get a warm handoff immediately. We have 24 hours urgent care virtual visits that are ongoing. They get handed over to an urgent care provider. And I oversee all this. So I trained all the urgent care providers on our point scoring system. And they have template. We use Epic, have templates built into Epic where they run through the score system with the patient, their duration of symptoms, test positivity, et cetera. And if they meet criteria, they essentially get them scheduled immediately for an infusion. So that's one way. Providers can also call that number, but we also have a provider-to-provider handoff, which is essentially to me. So we have this COVID pager that the stewardship team is an extra pager we built during COVID and providers can page us on that pager. And I have a mechanism essentially, you know, I can quickly screen them and I just have to put in a little quick telephone note to our care navigation. And they get them scheduled. The other thing I think actually I is really important to point out. So Intermount, when they first started doing this, they just have like a much bigger scope in the state. So they have the most data is why I keep referring to them. Intermountain found out at the beginning. So they started doing outreach immediately. They um, redeployed, I think primary care physicians to their MAB team where they can identify patients and we can too in Epic. We have reports that are on our COVID positive list. Our uh, EHRs are calculating the state risk score on everybody. And so Intermountain got theirs up and running first. So they have a team of physicians for several hours each day. It's it's decreasing now because case counts are going down, that they actually contact people and say, hey, how are you doing? And you may meet criteria for for this therapy. Would you like to come in? They found that only 30% of patients they were infusing came from referrals. The vast majority came from people that they had to go out and reach out to who qualified. To my point of like, You know equity and who's going to seek out this therapy and really who's high risk based again on our state scoring system. So we have started doing similar things. It's a little confusing, but in everybody's test result, it says you may qualify for this therapy and it links to the state website. We have my chart in Epic and um, patients who are high risk based on the state score, because we can calculate it in Epic, they get automatic Emails, text messages in English and Spanish saying you may qualify for this experimental therapy if you're interested. I think it doesn't say experimental, but something like that. Reach out to us. And then we also have care navigation. They're calling people. So if, if they have a my chart account, it's automatic messaging, but they're also doing calling of people. And that's increased our infusions quite a bit. Again, because the people who really are at high risk and qualify for this therapy are not always going to come to us. And I bring this up because it's going to be the same thing with vaccines, right? It's like we already see this the people who have cars can take off from work understand how to use internet to make you know appointments etc they're the ones getting vaccines and it's the same for this so that's how people get into our system and the point just being in utah we are really trying to also go out and grab them and bring them in if they qualify
0: that's amazing that kind of outreach is super important i think we're all trying to figure that out is particularly with vaccines. And I actually, we had a call um, with a lot of our equity leaders earlier this week and someone brought up a point and it was so meaningful. They were like, if you are calling people about now, so early in November, right? That made sense outreach about antibodies, but they're like, if you're calling someone in an underserved community now about their monoclonal antibody, and you're not also telling them at the same time how they can get their vaccine, that's the wrong message because you're telling them you can treat them, but can't prevent. And so completely reframing that and making sure that you're doing both at the same time. Cause of course, vaccination is, is the most important thing right now, but all in all that outreach system sounds phenomenal. I'm sure everyone's going to be jealous after they listen to you explain that
3: if I can add, you you keep using the word risk factor calculator, that's automatically done. That is, that is amazing. You know, those who know me very well about stewardship, I love risk factor scoring systems. It gets the patients the best care, the the most eligible patients, the best care. So, you know, if, if whoever's listening, if your health system or your, you know, abilities to do that, I think that's great. I think it, it increases the equity of this product to, or any product to the the patients who deserve it the most.
2: I mean, one thing to highlight, of course, not to There's gaps in it, right? So there are like people who clearly get tested. I would think that they're probably more the more healthy folks, but who don't have any comorbidity data, or they're not really they have no data in our DDW to pull from. You know, that's essentially what this is pulling from is ICD-10 codes a lot of it, which is not perfect. Their BMI, you know, we have shortness of breath in there, so we've lowered the risk. We've 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 lowered the point score on the epic. Um, list and flag because we we have to ask them that. So, but you know, there, there's probably people at high risk that don't flag because we don't have any information on them. And same for Intermountain. But it's clearly much much better than than doing none of this. Yeah,
1: I feel like in the absence of that phenomenal dedicated
2: infrastructure
1: that Emily's described, you would almost need active screening like you would for a clinical trial. If you can't have someone from IT develop that dashboard of Oh, patients with positive tests and the EUA criteria, you'd need an army of people out there looking and, and making calls. We haven't made that kind of dedicated resources at My Health System, but there there are those calling approaches at, at hospitals around us, and they've been pretty successful. So we, we're we relying on either patients to call, but it's mostly referrals from primary care, urgent care in the ED, and only those affiliated with our health system at this point. The, the medical record communication is is easier when it's internal to the health system. Right now, we only have a few locations that are offering infusion. And so it's really key to have that same day or next day appointment, particularly when the infusion is not available on site where the patients are presenting. Right now, that hasn't been a huge limitation, but it really would be with bigger demand.
3: So at Maine Medical Center and within our health system, Maine Health, the way patients get referred and scheduled is one of two ways. If you're a provider and you work within our health system, you'd have epic access and it'd be really easy. You just find your patient in the chart, electronically refer to a pool that we created. On the other end of this pool, we have care managers and access center um, employees that look at this pool every single day. And so if they see a patient pop up, they go, okay, let me assess this patient. Um, and we're, you know, we train them to look through the EUA criteria risk factors you know for example in the beginning we had to train them to make sure that the patients were greater than 65 or bmi greater than 35 now that's changed but you know those are the type of training we did now for non main health providers we did open it up you know we were trying to be as helpful to the community as possible what we did then is if a provider in an outside health system called us we would fax them a paper form same thing it would have the criteria it would have you know, how the patients would get scheduled and they would just fill out a paper form with check boxes and all that kind of good stuff. And then they would fax it to the number that we asked them to. We would just then create an electronic encounter for that patient. We'd reach out to them and then, you know, talk to them about what they would need to do to show up, expectations, things like that. So it it was a lot of considerations on how to accommodate. That's the difficult part is, you know, we want to not be in close and not say, you know, this therapy is just for main health. We want to be able to say this is for the community, but I will say the one thing that we, you know, we didn't really do actively is advertisement. And that's just something that is a challenge in general. We set up these infrastructures in case it happened. You know, we got questions it came in, but we weren't, you know, creating commercials. We weren't sending mass emails. We weren't blasting people's, you know, mail and inboxes and saying, Hey, come, you know, we have monoclonals. So that was just you know, something that we didn't really have time or resources to do.
0: Yeah. I think those are all really important points. A couple, I guess I'm going to start with your ladder and then I'll work backwards in that. Should we be advertising? And Emily spoke to this a little bit in the direct patient outreach we know with COVID-19, there's so much misinformation in the news and it's, you don't know what you don't know. And the general public have a really hard time. I have this conversation with my own parents every day. They don't know that what they're hearing is wrong and they just want to like take what they're hearing and, and, you know, do the best thing. And it's almost impossible for people outside of a space. It's almost impossible for us to sort through this information and make sense of it. And so while on one hand, it's like direct to consumer for mabs feels weird on the other, it's like, but maybe we need to, because if we're really, If, you know, again, if it's going to be these very high risk patients, keeping them out of the hospital, maybe it's our responsibility to teach them. And that's something we are working through diligently now too, is, you know, how do we reach these patients and things like that. The other piece on the paper orders, we did that as well when we started. We had developed a paper order form that you, you fax it to a phone number. That phone number goes to an email distribution listserv, which goes to our central MAB team that process all the referrals and schedule patients every day. And I was really proud of us for thinking of that at first because we Pittsburgh is in the bottom left corner of Pennsylvania. It's right next to the West Virginia panhandle. So not only do we have rural access in central Pennsylvania, but then we also from our, um, Western Maryland and from the West Virginia panhandle, we have a lot of very small critical access community hospitals around us that aren't in our health system. And we want to just serve those patients, but let you live and you learn. So we put the paper order on our monoclonal antibody internet, like whole UPMC resource page. I was like, Oh, if you're not in UPMC, you can't find the paper order form. So then I learned who the people are that run upmc.com, and for the first time ever, figured out how to put information on the external websites. Because I, and to Susan's points earlier, I am an inpatient stewardship pharmacist. I've only ever dealt inpatient, and so learning all of these things about the outpatient world was was quite a learning curve. But I think what we're hearing repeatedly is just like the enormous infrastructure that this takes, and so some of the monoclonal antibody. You know, underutilization could largely be because people are waiting more data. And I'm sure for so many people, that's the case. But a lot of it, I also think, is just the sheer amount of work that this took, the FTE support that's needed, the dedicated time, how many bodies you need to do this. um, I think we're hearing over and over again. So this is quite an investment. And without health systems getting support to do this, I mean, you know, there's not people who were like waiting in the wings to become the monoclonal antibody person. And so someone that's doing monoclonal antibodies is not doing their previous job. And I think that's something for all of COVID that we've realized that there's trade-offs when we dedicate to COVID efforts. That's, that's other things that we're not doing that we used to do. And so these are just absolutely tremendous systems. The other minor thing I'll comment on, and then you guys, please jump back in if I missed anything. We, my health system is one EHR for inpatient and a different EHR for outpatient. And I don't think that's uncommon. And so there are a lot of people, I believe that, so we're Cerner inpatient and Epic outpatient, which I know of at at least some other colleagues that are in that boat. So we had to build referral orders in Cerner, in Epic twice, actually, because we have two health systems, two Epic systems for two different parts of our health system, the paper orders, and then essentially just had to ask for support from leadership that said, we need, you know, a central pool of people who are going to triage all these referral orders. Other important things. I know Emily said Utah has it, but you need, we didn't have this at first and then quickly developed one when we realized you need a patient hotline. Like it's great that providers can order things in the EHR, but patients need to be able to call directly and discuss these things and answer questions. So you need someone to answer that phone and you need a phone number. So these are all the things we kind of lived. And you have to train the person
2: on the phone what to say. Cause we had for, we had to keep going back to their scripting And they, people would say plasma or, you know, we had to keep training over and over again about what people, because there was a lot of confusion, what people were calling about. I would, can I just jump in and say like, you know, about the sort of thing about the outreach and the advertising and, you know, we've had ongoing discussions just to make everyone feel like this state committee, there's been so much pressure from different groups and a lot of back and forth about, we should just open it up like this urge to use something because it's on the shelf, but then you know, other part of the group saying, you know, we don't want to over, why, why treat 50 people to help one when you can maybe refine it and treat 16 to help one, you know, like we don't really know how effective this is. There's been a lot of back and forth and like, should we be advertising more? And I just, just to point out, I think those are healthy discussions to have. And, and, you know, also the capacity, you know, my administration, my leadership, I want So we only do it three days a week, which creates other problems depending on when your symptoms onset, <laughs> onset is and when you call and whether there's a holiday, but I wanted to go. And so did the nurses to five days a week week at least, and we wanted to get additional FTE and leadership. And they're probably right now because it's, you know, the cases are waning and there's lower demand, but they did not, they wanted to put everything toward vaccine to their credit. And there was a lot of push and pull about, should this be expanded? Should it not? And we held off and now I feel okay about it.
0: On that note of patient education, let's talk about The fact that this is an emergency use authorization therapy, and you have to review the FDA fact sheet with the patient before you infuse the therapy. We had a lot of discussions about when this should occur, uh, because obviously there's multiple steps to this process. And if you compound the drug and they're in the chair and then they say, no, that's bad. But if you don't, who logistically reviews it earlier? So what are you guys doing about education? Minky, do you want to start?
3: Yeah. Yeah for patient EUA education, what we've done is we now go to virtual, obviously, you know, a lot of telehealth, a lot of Zoom uh, appointments, just to limit number of patients showing up at offices. So PCPs or providers would provide the EUA over the phone, electronically, virtually, and then when they showed up at the infusion center, they would get a paper copy. And then at that point, the nursing staff would just do a smart uh, smart phrase that says, you know, patient showed up, we gave them the smart sheet, we asked them if they have any questions, patient said no, they were comfortable. They had talked to their PCP already. And so that's how we closed the loop in terms of making sure that patients got a paper physical copy. But that was, you know, hats off to the operations team for coming up with that idea.
2: Uh, Minky, we do a similar thing at, at Utah. I think I mentioned most of this is coming through urgent care virtual visits. And and, and I probably didn't say this, but we picked urgent care because they're they're down in volumes of, of, of you know visits. And so this was a use for them and they were happy to own this and work with me on this. But when the urgent care provider does the virtual visit, when the patient comes in through our hotline, they are electronically going through it with them, send them a copy, but they're also given a paper copy. I believe (laughs) when when they come into the infusion center provider to provider referrals, it's a little bit hit or miss, and we may be missing some of those, but since most of them come through a certain pool of providers, they're tackling it.
0: The other interesting thing that we do, that I don't know if it's right or wrong, but when we initially didn't know about supply and we didn't know about ordering and we didn't know how to pick between the therapies, we actually wrote a system therapeutic interchange policy that we order monoclonal antibody and the pharmacy dispenses whichever one they have. Um, cause at the time we, uh, and currently, you know, you could say there's equipoise that all of them are the same. Now, I think what Susan mentioned in our data, data debrief at the very beginning, as we learn more about variants and we learn that combination products may be more beneficial than perhaps a monotherapy product. We'll have to reevaluate that. But right now a, a patient just gets a referral and they get whatever drug the pharmacy has on stock. That's and the we'll, same we'll- for us. Yeah. Same thing. Yep. Same for us too. Interesting. Okay. Very cool. And then just, so moving on then we've talked about building your system, setting up your infusion centers, how patients get referred. So now patients are referred. They're going to show up at the infusion center. There were some other hurdles in establishing infusion centers outside of the infection prevention considerations and the staffing considerations. Uh, We had to give a lot of training and education, all, all, all the infusion pump kind of stuff. Emily, do you want to maybe start with some of those extra things, even if these are just quick bullet points for our listeners? If you're setting up an infusion center, what, what kind of other considerations
2: need to go into that? Have an amazing pharmacy and infusion center (laughs) team too. I mean, they like did this all for, I I don't know what to tell you. Like, I just say, can, can you make this happen? (laughs) And they made it happen. Sorry. That's not much help. (laughs) No,
0: we love it. Thanks. (laughs)
3: We almost did like a dress rehearsal walkthrough before we We even went live just because we did have our, our compounding location was separate from the infusion. So we really had to walk through timeline. When do we want patients to show up? Okay. If it's a certain time, we actually did not release orders until patients showed up because we ran through scenarios where let's say a patient gets scheduled and they are a no-show that's a, that's a wasted dose potentially. So we actually When patients show up, there's an intake person that goes, okay, patient showed up, let's release the order. And then the order is actually then sent through like electronically down to our infusion center, which is about 10, 15 minutes away. The pharmacy sees that they automatically, you know, start compounding. And then the courier comes and that's why we only have four, two in the morning and two in the afternoon so that we have scheduled couriers every single day. Our infusion centers are pretty well oiled now, you know, we train them to go through everything from teaching the patient, getting their peripheral IV started, all that kind of good stuff.
1: I would say that our health system is doing some, something similar to what you described as well, Minky. We're using only internal and affiliated infusion centers, but they were all pre-existing. So we are very lucky to be able to rely on, on that existing infrastructure. So after the order's made, the referral is made, both the home infusion or the infusion center area and the provider both have to evaluate those criteria, but then they can confirm local medication availability and prior authorization processes for the visit, but it uses those existing workflows that were already in place. We have a centralized approach to medication monitoring and distribution that the ordering and procurement has, has that process going already, working with our, our central drug information folks. But there is a reason that infusion pharmacy is its own subspecialty. There are a lot of things that go with this in, in the the logistics that you don't think of if you're not doing this every day.
3: Yeah, a little quick comment on the pediatric side. So we, um, our door is not closed for the pediatric population. Um, We recognize that they are eligible. We did add a little caveat that we want all pediatric patients considered for this to go through our peds ID consultants. And so I don't know if there have been an N or any, any pediatric patients that have been referred to them, but I do know that to this day, we have not infused it in a pediatric patient. To your point, Aaron, there are huge pediatric extra things we would have to consider. So I think we would have to actually plan ahead pull in peat specific nurses who are trained to give a monoclonal antibody therapy to a pediatric patient for that particular infusion. So extra work would have to go into play for that.
2: We also have PEDS criteria on our state website as well. So that was informed by pediatric infectious diseases, colleagues That so it's weird here. PEDS ID is, is. The primary children. We have a freestanding children's hospital. There's an intermountain hospital that sits right here at the university of Utah and the faculty are university of Utah. So it's kind of a mix. So they are infusing over there, I think through the intermountain supply and they haven't done a whole lot, but have set the own cri- the criteria that we use at the state to infuse kids. Our pediatric criteria
1: actually depend on the comfort level of taking care of peds at that location. So each site has the ability to customize their pediatric criteria. Most of them are 16 and older. Others have said they'd go down to 14 or 12 if there's an urgent
0: need, but we haven't seen that yet. Interesting. Thank you guys. Yeah. There's so much to think about. I do want to briefly remind our listeners that this podcast episode was sponsored by an unrestricted medical education grant from Regeneron, and we thank them for letting us walk through a lot of these operational considerations that are are very important to consider if you want to give people antibody therapy. So now we've worked through all the logistics of getting patients into clinic, actually infusing them. Let's talk follow-up and data tracking, because this is all of us as stewardship people, like the, the Holy grail. And we just do a lot of stuff all the time and aren't always so good at quantifying it or capturing data. So I uh, think we all have a lot to learn here and all wished we had like a billion more data people to help us. But what, if anything, are y'all doing for patient tracking, patient follow-up and data tracking?
3: Uh, I can start really quickly because I don't have much to, to offer. So from a clinical outcomes, clinical outcomes in terms of, Hey, did, did we prevent what's the rate of preventing hospitalizations for ED visits? I don't know the answer to that yet. I have run data though, in terms of utilization. So what I've been able to do is map out, you know, the ebbs and flows of how much we've been giving per week since I believe sometime in December, that's the data collection that I've been doing mainly, but I haven't been able to do clinical outcomes yet, unfortunately
1: we're not doing a lot of internal data collection because there's the reporting form that everyone sends to the state and the state does excellent routine clinical updates including on the monoclonals from the data that's compiled there their priority is similar to what emily mentioned are not just the safety and efficacy but to really monitor and ensure equity so i've been interested in in following how how are the demographics matching up with the demographics of the pandemic? And it doesn't match perfectly as you might imagine. But I think we learn a lot about the most common locations for infusion. 38% are in emergency departments, but most are in infusion centers. No severe adverse offense over 1,500 administrations across the state, but the post-infusion admission rate is around 5%. So that's that's what we've got in terms of data, and and our health system as part of that isn't a, a major outlier, and, and that's about as best we can do
2: in terms of tracking. So we have pretty good data. I'm realizing how spoiled <laughs> I am. So we yeah, have- Yeah, rub your...
0: it in, Emily. We're like- <laughs>
2: She's like, we have a fancy risk score for the entire state. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Well, we'll we'll get to that part. So we have, I'm just looking at it. We have a COVID-19 monoclonal antibody usage and I had him pull an outcomes report where it, for each patient, they're grabbing the first ED urgent care or inpatient admission and calculating for me the days since their infusion that it happened. So we can tell you how many people get admitted. We don't do any specific like follow up with providers or anything like that. We also have a report where we're tracking how much outreach we're doing. And I, this had nothing to do with me. The the outreach group or the, the care navigation had that built so we can tell how many they're messaging to, essentially, either through some of these text messages or calls. I will say again, Intermountain is doing a lot of data tracking and there will just, you know watch. There will be data coming, looking at specifically, it's going to be a state group, but their experience sort of, you know, retrospectively interrupted time series analysis on monoclonal antibodies.
0: Awesome. That'll be, that'll be great to see. Within our health system, we do have a clinical analytics dashboard that is super helpful. So we can pull some of these bigger informations and a little more bit, a little bit on patient demographics. We run into some issues, just like anything like, our data is on charge data and these products are currently free. We have a, a patient at home app. So we do have patients try to log into, again, you run into issues with smartphones and access and things like that, but we do have a um, like a monitoring at home tracker that they can log into their um, their profile and their chart. And even if they're not in our health system to begin with and and track kind of like the CDC app for vaccines. So we've been trying to collect some data on that, but I don't have any, any analysis on it. And then, so collecting data, and with that, even without data, we all have our anecdotes. We know what goes well in a day and what doesn't go well in a day. And this process, especially something this, you know, massive and, and monumental, requires continual evaluation, feedback, and adjustment. Especially when you're putting so much time and resources into it. I want to discuss what's next. So, what do we need to learn about these therapies still? And I think the combination product role and and if those are going to have these impacts is one. And then my other. Last question I just wanted to ask you guys is other unique sites. Are your health systems supporting places like prisons, home infusion? Are you coordinating and, and treating patients at home? We've had this come up with our rehab facilities because they're technically outpatient, even though they're some of they're in some of our hospital units. So any thoughts on, I guess let's tackle the unique sites first. Any thoughts on on those?
3: So in terms of us operationalizing it, you know, some main health actually going in and, you know, infrastructurally setting things up. The answer is no, I think we've allocated to some smaller home infusion sites. We had one that went to like a, a veteran's home and stuff like that, but otherwise very minimal allocation.
2: So at the state level, and I honestly don't know where it came from. We have allocated drug to what I think the governor has called a monoclonal antibody strike team that goes to nursing facilities, long-term care facilities. I think they had other strike teams that were around like testing and like getting outbreaks under control in long-term care facilities and maybe even vaccine we loosened the criteria a little bit to base it, to you know not have them use this risk score in nursing homes because we thought there might also be a public health benefit i mean no data about that right but there may it may help quell some of their outbreaks and it was offered to staff who were positive in addition to residents that so this rolled out at the same time vaccines were rolling out in long term care facilities so i haven't had an update from the the long-term care facility rep uh, on the committee, but I think they were doing a lot at first and then that waned. But there was never interest we talked about at the state level prisons. Unfortunately, COVID had, I mean, I, I honestly don't know how much those populations change, but there had already been major outbreaks in our prisons. And so there was concerns also about a somewhat experimental therapy in prison populations as well and the ethics behind that. I would say like you guys, our our state initially distributed exclusively to
1: hospitals, but has been expanding to other places like skilled nursing pharmacies. One of the, I think, most interesting stories I've heard is from a a statewide strike team similar to to what you said, Emily, where they were working with the local paramedic groups to get IV lines ready or even help start the infusions to help distribute more quickly to nursing homes in some outbreak situations with quite a bit Of success there, and I think that's that's really cool. There are plenty of opportunities to be creative like this if we get the right people connected.
0: Yeah, completely agree. That's really well said. We did send supply to our senior communities, long-term care facilities, and I and we work with Chartwell. We've done a few at home. It's not this big, robust system by any means, but I personally would love to see that more. I think it's, let's use antibodies to develop that for every other treatment, right? Like if we're like, if we can treat patients at home, that's so much better. And and again, goes back to all our ethics and access issues. And so I kind of love using antibodies as the gateway drug to getting creative with how we treat patients. And so I think for me, that's the biggest, biggest future direction, which is how I want to end. So it's that time I, I hinted at Susan, if you want to talk us through Any coming data on variants and combo therapies and whatnot, we'd love to hear it. And then to all our panelists, anything you didn't get to say to the audience and any future directions you have as we bring this episode to a close.
1: Well, I think the variants are probably one of my biggest questions, not just about the monoclonals, but in general, Um, we hear a lot about this in the media right now, but there are so many unknowns. And so again, in the interest of not spending too much time or having to update this immediately because this changes so quickly, I'm not going to talk about specific individual mutations right now. There is an expanding number of variants reported. That itself is not unusual or unexpected. But we have, of course, heard reports of enhanced transmission, which is concerning. What we don't have is evidence to suggest that these variants are resulting in differences in clinical manifestations, severity or outcome. That is not known right now. However, with respect to the monoclonals, mutations have been identified in virus recovered from patients with persistent infection after receiving infusion. And these mutations, some of them, allow the virus to evade certain antibodies. This is then further supported by some in vitro data that demonstrates reduced neutralizing activity, but this is not clinically correlated yet, so we don't know exactly what it means. So we know that there are circulating variants, more commonly in some areas, and that they can appear to evade single monoclonal antibodies. One could surmise or extrapolate that there could be a therapeutic advantage to a combination, not clinically correlated yet. So much is still not known, like what factors might increase selection of mutations, maybe immunosuppression. We don't know about the durability or the diversity of these mutations. What the most important thing I take from that is that we need carefully designed surveillance in public health efforts and as part of that, the FDA has issued guidance on how drug developers can include these considerations in clinical trial protocols. We will know more, but we don't know it right now. So that just brings up some issues for ongoing data.
0: Uh, I wish I could could have an answer. Any other final thoughts from our other panelists? Thank you, Susan, for that summary.
3: Yeah, for me, when I when I read and hear about mutations and variants in infectious diseases, it's just another day in my life, another day in our lives. Cause that's what ID is. You know, ID is not, you know, simple. It's, you know, we expect things to change. We expect things to adapt just as we've done the last 12 plus months. We continue to learn. And I think with the variants across the board with therapies and vaccines, we'll we'll still continue to learn what the variants mean.
2: I just want to say, I'm grateful to have been part of this. You know, COVID has really sucked for a year, but I, I have to say like, feel very blessed and there's so many wonderful things that have come from it for me. And part of it is like the state committee and all these different things that I feel like, you know, personally, I, and we have been able to tackle. And I mean, from a stewardship perspective, COVID has opened up a lot of doors for me and actually locally made people actually realize probably how talented I am <laughs> to be. And I just, I would I would echo that for a lot of stewards. Like this has been an opportunity for ID, right. And for stewardship, not to minimize the impact of of COVID and how horrible it's been. Um, but it's been re- just hearing stuff like this and talking with people across the country about what they're doing and I actually feel like frank conversations about data and limitations and stuff like that has been so much more uh, people honest and open and admitting what you do and don't know, just all these benefits from um, this whole entire 2020, 2021 situation. So that's a long-winded way of saying thank you for having me. And um, this has been really, really fun.
0: Well, I couldn't co-sign that <laughs> enough. The I say it a lot, the silver lining of COVID, if we're looking for one, has been how many cool people I've gotten to work with. I think all of you are exceptionally talented. I think you're all awesome. I've very much enjoyed our time here today. And I thank you for everything you're doing for patients and COVID and all the work all across the board. So thank you guys for being here. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. This episode was sponsored by an unrestricted medical educational grant from Regeneron. I have been your host, Erin McCreary, and our featured speakers have been Dr. Susan Davis, Dr. Emily Spivak, and Dr. Minky Wangwatana. This episode was produced by Rachel Britt and Zara Kasamali Escobar. It was edited by Jarlene Sin, Eileen Akasali, and Kat Lincoln. Our production team includes Kelly Cole and Anna Zhao. The executive producers of Breakpoints are me, Erin McCreary, and Julie Justo. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.